everybody, and welcome to BC's Corner, a collection of culture conversations that I have the privilege of having with some of the most innovative voices and artistic champions that I have had the pleasure to encounter while on my journey. I want to start off today just by saying huge thank you to everyone who downloaded, who subscribed, who played our first episode. I was truly taken back by the amount of people who, you know, reached out, who listened, the phone calls, the texts, the emails. I truly appreciate you being a part of this conversation. And I felt so much love and so much support. And I can't wait to see what kind of conversations we have, what we try as we grow together. I am excited about today because it is our first ever conversation that I'm releasing on this platform. I wanted to be true to me in this first conversation. And so naturally, it is going to be about social justice, race, and affirmative action. I truly desire to have this conversation because it kind of coincides with where I am personally right now. I have been watching the Supreme Court as they are going to hear oral arguments concerning affirmative action on October 31st. And and so much of the substance of social justice gets lost in the spin. It gets lost in the 24-hour news cycle. And a lot of it has been lost, mistranslated. It's been overcomplicated. And in some cases, I believe that it has been watered down. This is clearly harmful to progress. And I thought that one thing I could do to contribute to a better understanding is to have a conversation with a true subject matter expert in the arena of social justice and affirmative action. And I did just that. Today's guest has served as the Chief Diversity Officer and Director of Equity and Inclusion and Title IX Coordinator at Texas State University. She is currently serving as the inaugural Chief Diversity Officer at Aura. Get ready for this. The Association of Universities for Research in Astronomy, as well as being a licensed attorney and founding partner of Trenton Makes Law, a boutique law firm based in Trenton, New Jersey. Her name is Amira McBride, and I have a very special connection to Amira, and you will hear a bit of our story in this conversation But my hope in all of this is to bridge the gap of understanding and open us all to new perspectives. All right, let's dive in. We go way back. Uh, Originally, (laughs) yeah, we go way back. Originally meeting my freshman year of college, Mm -hmm. uh, you were the chief diversity, equity and inclusion officer at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, where I'm an alumni And I ultimately joined your office as a diversity fellow. That was my first job in college. I was tucking shirts in and wearing ties and stuff. And during that time, I got to learn so much from you and learn so much about myself through the work that you had me do, yes, but also through the candid conversations that we were able to have in the office space. And I don't think I've ever experienced um, quite an environment like that where I was poured into in such an, an impactful way. And you imparted so much wisdom that at the time I did not fully understand. Um, But as time has gone on, I have started to recognize those lessons in my own life. And I just want to acknowledge you for that, for not just riding your horse, but also looking back and imparting into the next generation. And so I thank you for that. And look where we are now. Um, you're the, you're the first guest. Cry. <laughs> but you, you've done the work. And I think that's what, that's what makes the difference at the end of the day. And I'm just glad now that we can have 
one of those candid conversations that I remember so vividly in your office that we can have this conversation publicly. I look at your title in the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We'll define those in a minute. But the titles of like chief diversity and equity officers, they've existed for years, but really were brought center stage specifically in 2020. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a lot of false information has gone out about DEI. I'm going to use the acronym now. Um, DEI consultants, chief DEI officers. It's all made up. It all just appeared in 2020. I'm just going to throw out Robin D'Angelo because that'll trigger Mm -hmm. some people. Uh, But you've been doing this work for your entire professional career. You are a lawyer. You are a Mira McBride Esquire. (laughs) (laughs) When did you decide that this was the track that you wanted to pursue? What was that inciting moment for you? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And I'm super excited to be here. And I'm glad that our conversations at UWO, you were actually listening and paying attention (laughs) Uh, because we did some really impactful work. I think you were a part of the team when we brought Sabrina Fulton to campus, which is like the biggest event up to that point and since. So yes, we did some really awesome work at that school. But um, one of the reasons why I started doing this work, well, I kind of fell into it, to be honest with you, um, because after I graduated from law school, prior to my attendance in law school, I was a social worker. So I did a lot of social work, nonprofit organizations, county government, state government. Then I decided, you know, I can't keep working for people that aren't as intelligent as I am. So I have to go get me a terminal degree, essentially. So I went to law school, came out of law school, and I started working at Kansas State University, uh, which is my first job out of law school doing Title IX work. So I was the deputy Title IX coordinator there. Eventually, Um, before I left, I was offered the position of assistant director, but I left shortly thereafter. In that role, it was more of a compliance regulatory position. Like I'm investigating sexual harassment, sexual assault complaints. So it was very constrained into compliance. Mm -hmm. Um, But I interviewed for the position at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, not having very much experience in higher education, but understanding the assignment and knowing that I was capable of doing the work. So I just put my application materials in. I got the call back. I interviewed. Of course, I killed the interview because I knew what I was talking about. Yeah. Um, and then I, I was offered the position. So when I came into the position, I was hired by the chancellor, who at that time was new himself. So I was the first person that he hired. And he didn't really have an understanding of the work either. So it was sort of a let's figure this out together type of situation. So when I came into the office, I had a a very comprehensive understanding of affirmative action and compliance work, but not necessarily how equity weaved into the process. And so at that university, my office was responsible for recruiting faculty and staff. Um, And so I very quickly had to learn how to be an HR recruiter, how to be a higher education recruiter, um, how to understand how to make the process more equitable. Remember, we were on a predominantly white campus, which was almost like 97 percent of the employees there were white, like an ultra white campus. Like, let's let's put the context and we were in a very white space. Didn't give it away. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So not only was the community that we were in a very white community, but the campus reflected the community. Um, in that regard. And so um, having to convince a staff of color, for example, why would you want to come into Northeast Wisconsin, where it's cold nine out of the 12 months of the year, and it's super ultra white space to work. Um, And so that was my assignment. 
while I was there and also trying to change a lot of the internal policies on campus. So that's what got me into the work. And you mentioned, so there's diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's affirmative action. There's Title IX. Those are the terms you kind of brought out there. You kind of went into a little bit of Title IX. And the way that I viewed it, they're all connected under the umbrella of social justice. Some people, you know, if you only are familiar with one, you think of them each as their own silver bullet um, that will end racial discrimination forever. Um, But really, they're a collection of tools. Could you explain the difference between DEI, Title IX, affirmative action? Yes. So I think Title IX is, is, I wouldn't say is is very much related to the other two. It it can be considered a civil rights um, statute, but it's, it's more focused on gender sex, we'll use the term sex, gender, gender identity. So less to do with race, although there are some significant race implications about Title IX, which is a whole nother conversation. We look at the impact (laughs) of Title IX on white female athletes versus the impact on black female athletes and Mm. all that kind of stuff. But Title IX is a gender equity statute. So it doesn't necessarily play into race per se. But in terms of affirmative action, there are two ways that affirmative action is essentially incorporated into our daily lives. So we have, well, give you a little history lesson, you know, the U.S. being, we were essentially after emancipation, we were essentially functioning as an apartheid state, right? There was separate but equal Jim Crow laws, I would say from 1863, 65, all the way up until maybe 1965, when the Civil Rights Act was signed, some people will say 1955, when separate but equal was struck down. But certainly in 1965, when the Civil Rights Act was signed into law, excuse me. So we were a functioning apartheid society at that point. So coming out of Jim Crow, there was a recognition that, you know, because people have been denied economic opportunities, educational opportunities, all forms of opportunities because of race, Um, There was a recognition that we need to remedy this in some kind of way, um, which, you know, at first quotas was, you know, brought out there as a way to remedy it. The Supreme Court later on said no quotas aren't constitutional, but you need to come up with a way in the educational context to use race as a part of your consideration when you're admitting students to predominantly white institutions, for example. Because, again, in the past, race could have been the reason why you were not admitted. And so what we're seeing in these cases now in higher education specifically, um, I think the argument is, are these programs still useful in the society that we live in today? You know, the quote unquote post-racial society, right? Are affirmative action programs still constitutional given, you know, the 60 plus years? I don't know how I don't know how to add or subtract, but from (laughs) 1965 until now, so much has changed in our society that we don't necessarily need affirmative action program, I think is the argument against it. Um, and there's also a big argument that these programs discriminate against otherwise qualified white students, otherwise qualified Asian students, um, which is the newer case that we're seeing. Um, so that's the, essentially the arguments boiled down in very layman terms. Now, I was going to say in the, the equity work that you're referring to, um, diversity, equity and inclusion has transformed out of affirmative action, right? So I'll take it back to the higher education context. Um, Most universities started out with affirmative action offices or multicultural student affairs, that type of thing. But essentially, there were offices or places on campus that are like, okay, we have Black students here. We have 
Hispanic students here. We have Native American students here. Who do we send them to? Because we don't know what to do. We send them to the Multicultural Affairs Office, right? That now as we have expanded that definition and role and impact on student efficacy, the, the term has been expanded to be diversity, equity, access, inclusion, justice, whatever acronym you want to name it. Um, there has been more scholarship put behind it. There's been, you know, there's a whole national cohort of individuals who do this work. We have standards of professional practice for this work. Um, shout out to NADAHI, which is the National Association of Diversity Officers in Higher Education. So it has grown into a much bigger context than affirmative action, but it is is sort of a child of affirmative action um, in higher education. Got it. And one of the things that you did in your role leading affirmative action at University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, you actually did a lot of collaboration with diversity, equity, and inclusion, which had more of a direct impact with students. And that's where I got to initially first meet you. And you alluded to it before. One of the most memorable experiences from my time working for you uh, was when you brought Sabrina Fulton, the mother of Trayvon Martin, to campus. And I was a part of your office at the time. And I don't know if you remember, um, but you assigned me as her body man for the <laughs> event. And I, I don't will, remember that. I will never forget that experience. It was so cool. I was so, it was a moment because it was a huge deal for many reasons, but to really, you know, let the reality sink in, the Trayvon Martin murder in 2014 was not received like the Ahmaud Arbery murder in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, those two cases are eerily similar, but happened mm -hmm. in different periods of time. And cell phones played their own role in each one, one showing one fully on video and the one were only getting audio, which mm -hmm. left it up to storytellers to fill right. in the blanks, which really made it, you know, a horrific tragedy. And in my view, a miscarriage of justice. But you bring her to a predominantly white, you know, institution to have a conversation that was not widely accepted at the time. It was not some, a conversation as common as we're having it now. Mm -hmm. Looking at the last decade, and you kind of did a little bit of reflection in your previous answer, but what has been your, your reflection from 2012 to 2022 of how the needle of social justice has moved? I think more people, you know, the, the America is a funny place. Like is I've traveled internationally. I've had the, the benefit of traveling to other countries and I appreciate and love, you know, the ability to, to be an American, to benefit what this, what my ancestors have poured into this country. And then as a result, I'm able to receive as a benefit in terms of being a citizen and understanding, you know, the benefits of being here because it is very different when you go outside of the U.S. and you see how other countries live, you know, who aren't yeah. democracies, for example. So, but America is a very interesting place because for some reason, the majority has to, they don't believe it until they see it. Despite the numerous amount of times we're screaming, this is happening to us, this is happening to us. So in the civil rights movement, you know, they had to put it on TV, showing themselves getting beat showing themselves getting attacked by dogs. They had to put it out there. And I think, unfortunately, for this country, it took something like watching a man being murdered, you know, on video for, for there to be a light bulb, even though we've been saying this since, you know, Rodney King, for example, like police brutality exists. We've been screaming this, but it took that. And Rodney King was on camera too now, mind you. Um, but in the early 90s. But yeah. again, it takes us to see something like it in order for this country to recognize that it's happening. So I think there has been an awakening 
of the consciousness overall of the country, not necessarily that everyone agrees with DEI and all that kind of stuff, but I think people recognize like, okay, there's something to that, right? There is an issue here. Maybe it's not, you know, we don't all agree on the extent or the severity of the issue, but we all kind of recognize that, okay, there's an issue here. So I think that's the difference. Like you were saying in the Trayvon Martin case, for example, um, we gave, you know, the man who was white presenting the benefit of the doubt. He was the last person standing. He gave us out a story and we gave him the benefit of the doubt. Um, if you remember in the George Floyd case, mm. the Minneapolis Police Department put out a statement about what, ha- what happened in his death. And it was just like, oh, the other day we got into an altercation with a dude outside the store. Somebody died. Until that video surfaced, we were going to give them the benefit of the doubt in that conversation, in that incident. So I think that's the difference between the two. Like there was a a visual component to it and there was no benefit of the doubt. Right. You can see it. So I think that has awakened society Um, in terms of what has changed. I don't think anything has changed per se, because. I don't believe it. Justice is not accomplished until laws are changed. Right. We still don't have the George Floyd policing act passed at the federal level right we still are seeing voting rights being dismantled in southern states i live in texas for example and they have done a phenomenal job of stripping people of their access to the ballot right so yes there's a consciousness but justice is in policy justice is in legislation justice is in the way those things are interpreted at on the courts at the court level that hasn't changed much, in my opinion. So, yes, people are aware of it. But until we start changing legislation and, and sort of interpreting it as a civil rights statute that we want it to be, then it'll still be the status quo, unfortunately. And I've always said that there's a difference between representation and consciousness. Because uh, mm-hmm. one of the things that's interesting in that 2012 to 2022, the past decade, that time frame, is that there has been an increase in Black representation and minority representation on a national scale. Our first Black um, president, he got his second term in 2012. We have a Black female vice president. We have a Black woman Supreme Court justice. We are headlining TV shows and plays, and we're getting the Oscars. Viola Davis got her Oscar in this time period. Octavia Spencer, we're getting the Emmys. We're seeing more representation in the C-suite. Hey, we're even getting a Black Little Mermaid. Uh, But there's still that opposition and that tension that we are not moving forward. And I think you hit it on the head is that because there's not the legislation to follow the awakening, the, Mm -hmm. the consciousness. And so then I would ask you, what is your valuation of representation? When I did my final research for my policy degree, my whole thing was about descriptive representation in gubernatorial elections. And does that get black voters out to vote? Mm-hmm. Um, I won't go really into that research, maybe another time. But what is your valuation of the power of representation? Um, I think it's two sided. Yes, those things are important, right? Because I want my son or my daughters to be able to see that individuals who look like them can achieve success in multiple areas, right? In politics, in, you know, in business, in government, in entertainment industry. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, that's only going to go as so far as, you know, them being there because Barack Obama was the president when Trayvon Martin was murdered. He was the president when Mike Brown was murdered. What has essentially changed since then? Nothing. Just because a black man was there as a president, a black man was there as the attorney general, and they still were murdered. And there were no charges brought against the officers, against the officer who murdered Mike Brown, for example. So, yes, there's representation. But again, 
where is the policy or the legislation to enforce what, you know, what we need to be enforced in our community. So we have to be careful with that. I, I had, for example, I have very, I had a very strong reaction to Juneteenth, for example, being made a federal holiday. Mm. Um, a lot of people were cheering about that. Yay, Juneteenth. And it's like, and what, right? <laughs> you know, you get right. another day off. Yes, there's a recognition of, you know, something that's important to African-Americans. And surprisingly enough, Texas has been as conservative as Texas is, right? They've been celebrating Juneteenth here, I think, longer than any other state in the country. So that tells you everything you need to know about Juneteenth. So what, right? <laughs> like, what, what are, where's the George, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act? Where's the Voting Rights Act legislation? Like, where is the legislation that are, are dealing with some of the major civil rights issues of our time? So it's almost like tokens that we give out to placate people a lot of times, um, but it doesn't come with any substantive change. So yes, it's important to see that for example, I always tell my kids when I was growing up, I remember when black Barbies came out, like at one point in time, you could not find a black Barbie in a store anywhere. And then, you know, somewhere in the mid eighties, it was like, oh my God, they're black Barbies. Like, yes, like I could go to the store and find me a black Barbie. That was important as a representation, right? Because I'm a little girl and I have a toy that looks like me that's popular. I can play with it. But at the end of the day, what games were made, right? I made a, another right. corporation, who probably had an all-white male leadership board executive team more wealthy because I went out and bought, you know, the 20 black Barbies they had, right? So yes, representation matters, but if there's no policy or enforcement for civil rights legislation, and I think it it falls flat to a certain extent. Let's turn to policy now. So you brought up the Supreme Court a bit earlier in one of your answers, and they are going to take up affirmative action in this next term. They're going to start hearing arguments, I believe, on October 31st. And this caught my attention, not just because I'm a news junkie, because I've been observing the overall trends of our current court. And no matter the decision that they make, it has cultural implications, not just on university campuses, but for the culture at large. In both cases, they center around the use of affirmative action practices in university admissions. I believe it's Harvard University and then University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. And the argument being that, and you said this before, that it hurts some minorities, specifically Asian Americans, when things like personality scores um, that are not neutral when accounting to race are used to take into account their admissions. And Some believe, and this is actually, I believe, a rough quote from the Chief Justice John Roberts, that in order to move past race, we need to stop determining success, qualification, value, access based on race. And alternatively, some would say that you're not solely looking at race, but you're looking at the whole person. Mm -hmm. You've already said a bit about your understanding of these upcoming cases, both Harvard and Chapel Hill. Can you speak to the wider uh, implications at the university level and beyond uh, if we see affirmative action go down? Yeah, I think they'll probably be apparent at these elite, you know, IVs and very competitive schools, right? Like UNC Chapel Hill is a big division one, very elite public school where Harvard is, you know, always ranked as either the between the first, second or third top school in the world in the country, or if not the world. So I think you'll see the impact more in those elite spaces as opposed to like UW Oshkosh, right? Where it's not as competitive. But I think um, the argument about the impact, I think you'll just see less Black students on campus. I mean, it is what it is. I think affirmative action should be a floor, period, right? Because it's 
you're essentially essentially legislating people to give to to give people an opportunity to participate because the 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 necessity for affirmative action comes out of you know a lot of times students of colors particularly black students don't do well on standardized tests for example so and there's a lot of research behind whether standardized tests are racist though i mean that's that's a whole nother thing in and of itself so if you're using these metrics that are have historically shown student black students for example are not as competitive as their white counterparts when you're comparing these test scores up against each other, then why are we even using that as a rubric, right? Why are we using that as a rubric? So I think the impact will be less Black students on campus. I mean, that's just essentially what it's going to be. And I think because we have a super conservative majority in the court, I think we might as well, you know, say goodbye to (laughs) affirmative action as we know. I don't think there's any way Given the posture of this court, given, you know, the history of, you know, the justices that are there and their strong positions on this issue, I don't think there's any way that affirmative action is going to survive this challenge. Um, With that being said, this is not related to the conversation at all, but I am a proud HBCU alum and I am a strong believer of going where you're celebrated and not tolerated. And I would encourage all of those students who are competing to attend at those elite universities go to an HBCU. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it, it, that's a very, you know, sort of hyperbolic, you know, everybody's not going to want to HBCU, but I feel like at this point in the game, because, you know, there's, there, there aren't going to be any protections for you. Essentially you're in a predominantly white space. You're going to have to deal with that anyway. I say go where you're celebrated and not tolerated because I don't think affirmative action is going to stand, is going to survive this challenge. And, and you made the comment like it does affect more of those, you know, more fluent universities. And a lot of people use university as the ticket into the upper middle class, into Absolutely. the middle class. Uh, and a lot of minorities, like people often say, like, can't we approach the conversation about race, but also include class or just mm-hmm. talk about class? you know, exclusively. But what the research has shown is that race and class are intertwined and they are connected in the given circumstances of an individual play into, you know, the opportunities that they pursue as well. They did for me. Uh, Is it to say that attending a, you know, an affluent university gives you that ticket and going to, you know, a university of Wisconsin Oshkosh doesn't? I wouldn't agree with that. I think that it has to do with the determination of the individual. And I want to go to your comment about, you know, telling people to go where they're celebrated, because some would say that for me, for example, I made the choice to go run, to literally run into an uncomfortable situation, to attend a predominantly white institution. I have always been in PWI environments. And so being around more white people just wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that I thought of as a real block. That thought ended up changing when I was meeting people from Rhinelander and, you know, from Buckwoods. But I I chose to run into those uncomfortable situations when it comes to race and really to embrace them. And it's been rewarding for me. Would you say that it's unfair to expect that from other minorities, that we need to be the bridges, that we need to put ourselves in uncomfortable situations, that it's not just white people that have to accommodate, but also our willingness to cross the divide? What do you say to that? Yeah, and I, um, I'm i glad that you asked that question because I feel like, especially those of us who are trying to ascend, you know, our socioeconomic status. So yes, education for me absolutely was 
a game changer for my family, right? It was an access to intergenerational wealth accumulation, right? I'm a homeowner. I make, you know, I'm considered upper middle class based on the income that I'm making. That's a dramatic shift from how I grew up, you know, what my parents had access to. So my children's life, you know, are substantially different than mine because of their access to resources, right? So for those of us who are in that position, a lot of times we feel like we have to bridge because we're in predominantly white spaces a lot. For example, I'm the only black person on the executive leadership team at my current job. So I'm always in a position where I'm the only black person in the room, right? Is it my responsibility to explain things to them, cultural issues down to them? You look, Like you said, be a bridge. I will argue it's very person dependent because being the only black person in the room and having that uh, responsibility can be mentally taxing, right? And I don't want to put people in a position where they are, you think you're doing this good thing, but over time you're going to realize like, damn, that drained a lot out of me, right? That drained a lot out of me having to explain why George Floyd deserved dignity, right? Having to explain why the young man that was jogging, I can't remember his name. I'm out of yeah, my Arbery shouldn't have been gunned down in the street. You know, like that is so draining, right? You, and every time something happens, everyone's looking at you and, you know, what do we do? Like, that's not a fair a fair burden to you. First of all, information and access to information is is free. Go learn on your own. I'm, I'm yeah. not, I don't have the responsibility to teach you, to educate you just because I'm the black person in the room. So I think if you want to take on that role, that's fine, but it's very mentally draining. And I don't, I don't recommend that, especially to young people, because, you know, when you came into our office, Brian, you were off the chain. Like you were like, I don't see color. I only see citizens. <laughs> Why are you exposing me like that? Why are you exposing me to the people? And I'm like, uh-uh, like Brian. And so at the time I had Aaron working for me, I'm like, Aaron, we're going to have to get him because <laughs> we got to get him all the way together. Right. If you had not had that experience with us and you were trying to go out there, you know, being a bridge, like you would have, you would have collapsed. Like, cause you would have been walked all over. Yes. Like, and not in a good way. Tools. Exactly. You didn't have the tools to have those type of conversations. So I don't want people to feel like they, like that's something that they should do. <laughs> Cause they call me, people don't know that bribe. People never met that bribe. Oh my, but that's true. That was true. Like I thought it was kosher to be like, I don't see color and I want to move forward and I want us all to, to view each other as equals. But as I've gotten older and I've experienced a lot more, it's like, if you won't recognize that you are black, someone else will. Uh, And I, and even for this being one of the first conversations I've hosted um, on BC's corner, I noticed that like race is one of those things that I don't mind talking about it because mm-hmm. I you deal with the thing of like, you know, oh, there you go talking about race again. And I told someone once it was like I am I live in Lincoln Park, Chicago, very different kind of neighborhood than Racine, where I grew up and even Oshkosh. And it, I am so conscious of my race when I walk out of the door, when I send an email, no matter who I'm interacting with, how I dress all of that plays a huge part in how I interface with the world. Mm-hmm. And it's really here in my home where I feel the safest and where I feel like I can really be myself and let my hair down. And so I think, you know, being someone that people feel that they can talk to as a, as a Black man is cool, but also understanding the boundary um, mm-hmm. and understanding my heritage and understanding where I've come from and what others who have come before me sacrifice mm-hmm. for me to have the privilege that I have today. It just, it, it means so much. And I think that's really why I wanted to bring you on too, to have this conversation 
because it is so necessary. And right. it's me talking to an educated, proud Black woman about, you know, who is an expert on these subjects can potentially, you know, sway someone in their understanding and move them to inquire more and to look into this more. I think that's what I would want to take away from this. And so having a conversation that is centered on identity, our shared identity right. um, as Black people and how we move in this country, uh, that doesn't always seem to be for us in, right. in, you know, in, in a large manner. No, I agree. I agree. I think, and I'm so... I'm so proud of your evolution. You know, there's like you always have a soft spot for you, Brian, because you look very similar to my son. I told you that plenty of times, but you, yeah. you act and you look a lot like my son. So every time I see you, I see my son. When I was engaging with you, right, in those conversations, number one, I had to take on a responsibility. I'm in an institution of higher education. So no matter what role I serve, right, I wasn't a faculty member. I didn't teach you anything like in terms of your classes, but it was my responsibility as a black woman, as a mother, as someone who could have been your mother to educate you in that, in that situation. So that's, that's the responsibility I took on myself, which is why, you know, we wanted to wrap our arms around you, but it's also important for us to have, be able to have these conversations with each other because it can be very culturally taxing, right? It is, there is a, a term called cultural taxation, right? When you're always the, the go-to black person. Again, some people can handle it better than others, um, but there is a taxation that goes along with that and you just have to be cognizant of it. I also think, now this is just my own personal theory. I don't have any research to back this up, but the Midwest is way more racist than any other section of the U.S. that I've lived in. I've lived in wow. New Jersey, North Carolina, Georgia, Texas, Kansas, Wisconsin, the Midwest, hands, Ohio, the Midwest hands now is more racist than any other place that I've ever lived in. And I think that students coming from the Racines, the Milwaukee's, the Green Bay area, like that, that racism is internalized in those students. And I, and I was seeing that on that campus. And so it, it, for me, it was something like, it was almost like a Booker T. Washington type thing where I had to take the, the cloak off your eyes so y'all could see, like, this is the world that y'all living in because you've been in this racist Midwest environment for so long that you're not understanding what your positioning is in this space. So that's why I felt like it was important to, to wrap my arms around you and other students in that position. And you did it so well. In closing, I would want to ask you just to speak to the work that you're currently doing. How can people connect with you? What are you up to? Yes. Yeah, so um, right now I work, I, I left higher education back in 2019. Um, I, the last university I worked for was Texas State University, which is how I ended up in Texas. I'm currently living in the Austin area, but I currently work for a nonprofit organization called the Association of Universities for Research and Astronomy or Aura for short. Um, I'm the inaugural chief diversity officer there. Um, essentially what my organization does is we build space, ground-based, solar-based, and space-based observatories for NASA and the National Science Foundation. Anytime you hear about the Hubble telescope, for example, or the James Webb telescope that we just launched in a space back in uh, 2021, um, that's essentially my organization who's operating that on behalf of NASA and or the National Science Foundation. And we have observatories all over the country. So I'm essentially responsible for ensuring that their their work and their engagement with their employees and our external audiences is equitable um, and rooted in 
some really significant DEI principles. And I also operate my own law firm part-time. I don't practice law full-time, but I do take on clients every now and again, particularly I'm in a Title IX space because I still want to stay up to date in that area. So I have a law firm called Trenton Makes Law LLC, um, where I'm a sole practitioner in that in that space. Um, it's based in Trenton, New Jersey, where I'm from. Um, it's important, it was important for me to have that space in my hometown. Um, and so that's what I'm doing. I travel very frequently. I just came back, for example, from the UK, where I was participating in a in a diversity conference there. And then at, the week after that, I was in Boulder, and I'll be back in in Boulder in a couple of weeks, and back and forth between here and Hawaii. So I travel significantly for work. But yeah, that's what I'm up to now. Awesome. And then I would love to get just a one phrase close of what your greatest hopes for the future are. It can be a phrase, it can be a word, but what are your greatest hopes for the future? I just want my children and my children's children to be treated fairly and have equal access to economic prosperity. So that's my hope for the future. So we only have two minutes left and I actually had one more question I wanted okay. to ask. And you saying you were in the UK was pretty great. So with the passing of Elizabeth II, reparations are back in the headlines. And I don't believe that this conversation has been had or done in good faith, uh, but the conversation has started up once again. Is it flawed to view affirmative action and welfare as reparations? Oh, absolutely. Those are just social policies that, you know, you're not just giving them to us. So let's be clear. In an employment context, white women benefit more from affirmative action than any other group. So that that's not exclusively to us, right? If you look at the numbers, white women benefit from affirmative action programming in the employment context, hands down over anyone. Um, welfare, again, there are, because there are more white people in the country, more white people are, you know, receive welfare benefits. So that's, that's not even close to, to reparations. Absolutely not. And that was Amira McBride, everyone. It was such a treat having her on the show, and we will definitely have to have her again. For more information about Amira and her work, please check out the show notes, which also includes the reference articles we used as the foundation of our conversation. Thank you all again for joining today's conversation, and, you know, I'll see you soon. <laughs> <laughs>